caught in possession. The ball loose now for Ducklev. That's a good one for Atta. Looks for the cross. No! Already the French marking up, man for man, Mariners on the near post, Butcher has pushed well forward, there's a header in there, and a great chance for the first goal, and it's there, Brian Robson! Brian Robson, number 16, counts there in the first minute, what a start for England, amazing! It's Spagna 82, one day at a time. I'm Rob Murphy, and we've reached day four. Another batch of teams to discover, but what a day. Goals, drama, upsets. Oh, this was an absolute thriller of a day. I'm sure the newspapers, with their deadlines, were just trying to figure out what to put on the back page, although in England, they knew only one thing to put on the back page. On the show today, to look through all these games, Kieran O'Hara. Hola. Hola, Kieran. Mick Foley. How are you doing, Rob? And Billy Joe Padden. Come on, Rob. All good? All good after watching England in what might have been their greatest ever World Cup display since 1966, even to this very day, if I get my tenses right. Yeah, well, it's the first time they've actually qualified for a World Cup since 1962. So, you know, it's going to be a pretty good day for them, but it was a bumpy road getting here, Rob. Mm-hmm. You might remember... This was the campaign or the qualifying campaign that gave us, I would say, the single best piece of Nordic commentary in history. From the legendary Bjorn Millilin. Lord Nelson, Lord Davidberg, Sir Winston Churchill, Sir Anthony Eden. Clemens Atley, Henry Cooper, Lady Diana, Yesus de Malisamen, Yesus de Malisamen, Maggie Thatcher, can you hear me? Maggie Thatcher, your boys took a hell of a beating. Your boys took a hell of a beating. Say Maggie Thatcher. Jesus Christ. Imagine, can you imagine what that lad must be like watching Erling Haaland? No. He was just so convulsed. <laughs> It's just like a, just a puff of dissolved person, gone. Oh my God. Like, fantastic stuff. For, for something that was, you know, I would say pretty spontaneous, his, his recall in later life, and this, this ultimately is the moment that defines him, is pretty good. He, he appeared on a chat show uh, close to retirement age, and they gave him uh, the question of, can you do it again? So I have that one too, if you want to hear. Uh. <laughs> Sir Winston Churchill, um, Sir Anthony Eden, Clement Attlee. Uh, Henry Cooper, Lady Diana. Yeah, yeah, I'll follow the Yahoo's Cliff Arton. Yeah, I'll follow the Yahoo's Cliff Arton. 
Og det er en til. Maggie. Maggie Thatcher. The most random collection of names ever assembled of, you know, prominent English people. Lord Beaverbrook? Uh, come on, you must have Googled him at this stage. <laughs> I, I literally, just as I was listening to that, I went, who or what was a Lord Beaverbrook? Did he not sign the treaty or something? <laughs> no. I, know, he, I, I have a suspicion he might be a character from The Wind in the Willows. <laughs> no, he's... A, I can tell you now, I can tell you now, having having uh, having caught myself up on Beaverbrook, uh, he was a newspaper publisher and a backstage politician. He was an influential figure in the British media and politics in the first half of the 20th century. Mm. That's our man. No wonder some random Norwegian commentator thought a Lord Beaverbrook. Who wouldn't? All right. <laughs> Well, I mean, they, they lost three games in qualifying, and, and we weren't given moments like that from the no. other two. I, no, like, I grew no. up knowing about that commentary, but I never really knew the context of when it was. And I always presumed it was just yet another failed England campaign, Kieran. But it turns out they actually got away with that one. No, and I mean, the, the, probably the more significant defeat on route was to Switzerland. Hmm. Um and actually what happens is Switzerland go on a run afterwards and they take points off the other teams. So England kind of stumble over the line in qualifying. But Ron Greenwood's done okay so far. He's come in in difficult circumstances after Don Rivey does a bit of a runner during the 78 qualifying campaign. He gets them to the 1980 European Championships and now he's got them to the World Cup. And coming into this game, they weren't fancy to beat France. In fact, in the run-up to it, Michel Platini was saying it was the fact that they play so many games in England that France were going to overrun the English because I think between Aston Villa being in the European Cup final, Liverpool playing 60-plus games that year, Spurs playing 60-plus games that year, he just figured the team that arrives playing for England are all going to wander in on crutches. Right, we've set the scene on a busy day. Let's get straight to it, game number one. England, three. France, one. 3-1, a game that was meant to be like, you know, early stages of the World Cup, make tight and tense. Well, 27 seconds in. Different story. <laughs> yeah, it was great crack. Oh, was mighty. Like, I mean, you mentioned at the top, was it England's greatest World Cup moment between... Between sixty six and whenever, I would be up there. Trick against Poland to probably be the yeah, next. Yeah, you see, yeah, you see, they, you, you know, and then you're getting into the nineteen ninety World Cup and all that. But I mean, in terms of sort of like moments that they possibly didn't expect, uh, yeah, this is it. Twenty seven seconds, as you say, they drive forward. Steve Coppel is bundled out over the right hand touchline. Throw goes in. Big Terry Butcher gets up, flicks it back. There is an enormous gap in the middle of the French defence. Like, massive. Like, you could park any number of trucks in there. And Brian Robson is right there in the middle with a very, very uh, ornate sort of a... What, was it, what would you describe it? Kind of a scissorsy volley, Billy Joe? What would you say it was? He has to he has to work to finish finish it. But in terms of the, the timing and the position he scores it from... Oh, like, pure Robson. Like the typical Brian Robson goal. Pure Robson. Pure Robson. 27 seconds and like the whole place goes nuts um, and the French are completely and utterly shell-shocked. But in retrospect, just for the game alone, just for the game itself, it's exactly what the game would have needed anyway was an early England goal because what transpires then afterwards 
it's a terrific game of football, first off. Terrific game of football. And it's a terrific game of football because you've got a clash of styles. You've got the English, that clash, just English, pure hard work energy with a tinge of quality against just the silken skills of the French. Uh, Gires, uh, Platini and Rochdo in particular in the middle, who we talk about more, just weaving their way through through the English defence. It finishes 3-1. It could easily have been 3-1 the other way. Um, it's just that or, the French or five all like or five Trevor, all yeah. Like, Francis missed some absolutely horrendous chances. Yeah, he, he misses them. Getting great finishing positions and then kind of finish with the softest of shots. Yeah, like th- this could have been an absolute goal fest. I was. It was just that last finishing touch was what was missing most of the time. It was. Just, but again, you know, back to that idea. Was it how big of a moment was it for England? I mean, the pressure that they were under, we normally just associate, maybe it's just our memory, it's our age. We associate pressure and England with Bobby Robson, 1990, Graham Taylor, etc., etc. John Matson, the old commentator, wasn't an old commentator in 1992, he was just getting into his trade. Um, first sheep's getting cold at that stage. <laughs> he was, he was probably, yeah. Well, he, he said during the qualification campaign for 82, he said, there is a serious danger that professional football in England, as we have come to know it, may not last much longer. That was on. That was his view of the of what might happen if England didn't qualify. They were kind of at a moment where they needed to get over the line. Uh, Ron Greenwood, the old the old West Ham manager, seen as a safe pair of hands, come in. Um, he did more than be a safe pair of hands, which we'll probably talk about in a wee bit. He did he did more than that, but um, very like lost three away games. In the qualifiers come in. They had they had won five of their previous six games coming into the World Cup. So they did have a bit of form put together. But the big thing for England that time as well was that they were missing Trevor Brooking and Kevin Keegan. Uh Trevor Brooking, obviously West Ham legend. Keegan was off at Hamburg at that point, was about to win a European Cup the following season with them. Keegan hurt his back and and Brooking had a groin injury. They were both included in the squad with a view to getting him fit during the competition, but they couldn't start the first game. So from the get-go. This England team, this England 11, right? This England 11 had never actually played together, ever, as a unit. Never started a game together, this, this England 11. Paul Mariner and Trevor Francis were the, guy, were the two up front. Uh, Mar- or sorry, um, Trevor Francis was replacing Keegan. They hadn't, I think it was like, they hadn't, they hadn't won a match. They'd only won once in four years with the two boys up front together. Um, and they picked Graham Ricks instead of Trevor Brooking, rather than Glenn Hoddle, which of course begins a begins a debate that continues on for another decade uh, about Glenn Hoddle. But that's where they were at. It was a tipping point. It was a tipping point, and and I mean beating France the way they did. I mean it just could only imagine the reaction back at home. Yes, when you should say about uh, I was reading in Keegan's book that they himself and Trevor Booking were rooming together and they had a red cross on their door was the joke that was going around. Uh, uh, but yeah, the, all the eyes were on the two boys and it wasn't looking good at that point. Uh, how good were England in this, Billy Joe? Um, I think they were good. I think as Mick says there, I think they they showcased all the strengths of, I suppose, well, if you, know, if you have the stereotypical strengths of, of English football and that you had the energy, physicality, being absolutely committed. Then when you add in the fact that it was an incredibly hot day um, and 
to me, to me, it it was a factor in the second half that England were by far the the stronger team. The fact as well that um, they were able to play at a high tempo and they were able to, I suppose, weather the storm in the first half because I, I I did feel that the French were the best team, better team, for the opening thirty minutes. And I I, I thought I thought. Uh, you know, I suppose I probably have a couple of questions I can maybe put put to the put to the uh, the lads as well in terms of, you know, we think of the, of this French team as being successful because they go on and win in in 1984 the European Championships to go on in this tournament have a great tournament have another good tournament in in '86, but I suppose they hadn't achieved any of this yet at this stage. They were still underachievers in many ways. Um, so I, I think after this game, you probably would have had some element of of, of pressure on the French team as well, and um, they go on to, re- to react too well. But you know, just getting back to England, I I, I, I look. I never watched much of Brian Robson, but he was fantastic. You know, dynamic, um, getting in the box. I thought the rest, there wasn't a whole lot of guile. Trevor Francis is a player that always intrigued me because everyone everyone talks about him being the, you know, the first million pound footballer. And I think it's very much, it's a it's a weight around his neck, not so much that it affected his confidence or anything like that, other than he just got pe- sick of people telling him about it. Uh, and I was just reading reading a couple of things before before the podcast. And I think it was Fabio Capello that said, you know, Trevor Francis was the best English export to to Syria. You know, with his time in Sampdoria, uh, so he didn't really work from that well at, at Forest, even though he was a two time European Cup winner. Um, but uh, obviously, a, a player with an awful lot of talent, probably didn't do his best work for England either. That's that's the funny thing. Like you talk about the burden of being the record breaking transfer for France or for Trevor Francis, but the flip side of that is Robson. Like takes on being the most expensive player in British football and just grows within it. Like this is his real arrival. He's he's not expected to be the star in this game. They're reliant on Brooking and Kevin Keegan. And what they get is this is the beginning of the guy that we see become an icon at Manchester United. And the two goals he scores in this game are quintessential Robbo goals. Mm-hmm. Like they're the second, you know, this glancing header coming late to the box, timing his run perfectly again. We see that countless times over the next decade and a half. Like the um, the first goal as well, actually, and the, the making of it touches on another issue with England. So Don Howe was the assistant coach beside Ron Greenwood. Don Howe at the time was at Arsenal, would become the Arsenal manager, would later on help Wimbledon to win an FA Cup and Cuba managed QPR. He played for England, actually played for England in the last World Cup they qualified for, as we said there, 1962. Known as a very pragmatic defensive coach at the time, compared to Greenwood, who was seen as the idealist because he had worked with West Ham and he had brought through Martin Peters, Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore during the 60s, particularly into that, into that great England team. But anyway, um, the Robson goal, number one. Um, yep, Don Howe took the credit. He said, yeah, we worked that out in the training ground this morning. Um, that idea of the flick and Robson arriving late. But it, as you say, it feeds into his um, feeds into his strengths. And he, he's at it all. He, I don't know if he's at it all day, but he's he's all energy. And like it's, as, as Billy Joe said, it's 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 not to, you don't want to bury them in, in, in cliches, but it, it is such an energetic. On a day when it was 33 degrees in the shade, like Paul Mariner, the striker came off that day and weighed himself. He'd lost eleven pounds. 
Graham Ricks, who played out on the left-hand side, lost nearly half stone. Like, it's absolutely boiling uh, in Bilbao. 33 degrees in the shade, lads. Do you know what Robson actually, you know, Robson was in line for after that 27-second goal, by the way. What was, what, 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 what was on the line for the fastest goal in, in the World Cup that year? Go on. A, lov- a lovely Seiko gold watch. Not bad. Mm. Yeah, it could have been worse. could have been a Seiko keyboard. <laughs> a solid, I tell you what, I'd take a solid gold Seiko keyboard right now in 1982 at the height of the Romantics. Would have been on top of the pops in a week. I wouldn't even have to write a song. Just go on with my gold keyboard. Hit the drum da, machine. Da, da. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Mills apparently it said uh, said in the papers afterwards that uh, they had one tactic in the dressing room and that was to sort out midfield by bringing Graham Ricks back. Uh, that changed the game. The French were dominating before halftime. Did you lads notice that? I didn't. Like I read that as well. Um, and I, 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 I can't say I know did the lads know. I didn't particularly notice it, but it mm. was it was presumably to to spike Gires and Platini, yeah. who were really like there was some gorgeous moments between the two of them, in particular. And then Dominic Rochto coming in and out from time to time. Oh Jesus! Like I mean, the passing, the movement. And just the speed of thought. I think Ricks was brought in just to break things up. Like he was, all, he was way out on the left hand side. I mean, I thought he was useless. I'll be honest for the first half. <laughs> Most of the time, he's the antithesis of speed of thought. Uh, he's not my kind of player. I, he's just not. Never. And I can remember him from the eighties. He never was my kind of player. So I'm, I'm just look. Good luck to him, but he's not my kind of player. Gave the ball away so many times. Took poor options. Made bad choices. Um. You know, I mean, and this was the guy that they left. Like, again, this is the guy that they chose ahead of Glenn Hoddle. I mean, would Glenn Hoddle have been better on the day in those circumstances? Uh, he would have been better than Graham Ricks giving the ball away anyway, that's for sure. Would he have been able to close down Alain Gires and all the rest of it? Probably not. But hopefully if you had Hoddle on, that wouldn't have been so much of an issue. Famously, though, with Greenwood, he'd given Hoddle his debut and then dropped him the next game because he needed to learn... That's football. You know, this is not the the Greenwood we know from his period with West Ham. Like Greenwood was the stylist. It was where West Ham got that kind of reputation for being the stylist of football was under his stewardship. But he's walked away from football in the early 70s to become general manager at West Ham because he's lost faith in football. Sick of it. Sick of it. And, you know, I was reading his obituary today and one of the final lines in it, and this was from The Guardian, was, you know, you were kind of going, is this fair? It was, whether it was wise to make Greenwood the England manager is a moot point. He seemed to have retired not only in body, but in spirit, disillusioned with the game and curiously unfaithful to his prodigies. Never so much as when he left broking out of a Wembley International, preferring a clutch of less gifted Liverpool players. Later, after the hugely talented Glenn Hoddle crowned a fine debut for England against Bulgaria with a spectacular goal, Greenwood dropped him with the remark that disappointment is part of football. By contrast, he seemed overindulgent to a Kevin Keegan, plainly no longer the force he was. So they're suggesting that there's an apathy to Greenwood as England manager. I think as well about the Hoddle debate, you know, Greenwood's instincts in relation to what sort of player he, he wanted to put out on the field. I think if, if you're going to play more expansive creative football, you have to be absolutely committed to it. And the question that Mick, you posed there about, you know, would Hoddle have done any better? 
thrown out there as a left winger told to keep an eye on anything that happens behind you with Kenny Sampson. You, you, I don't know. I don't think it would be any better because you don't have the players around them that are committed to playing that sort of game, willing to play uh, the you know the one touch football. Whereas you see, particularly in that opening half, the interaction between Platini, Jures, even you know even. Some of the defenders playing ball into feet into midfielders when they had their back to goal on you know nearly with a man on that wouldn't happen in the England team. There's no way in the world that anyone would play that pass. It'd just be pumped, it popped in over the edge for somebody to run run onto it. Um, so I, I think it's it's about a commitment. Just maybe just on the on the French team, I suppose. As I said, this is the start of it. And when you think of the the you know the great French team of the early eighties, it is the midfield. You you think about it. it's uh, Platini, Jerez. Uh, Tigana Fernandez, you know, there's no sign of Fernandez here. I think Tigana comes on. Um, so he's a young, a young player. Substitution, and I, which we should definitely talk about. We will. Yeah, um, yeah, but but I, I have to say, like, I I think he, we spoke about Ro- uh, Robson's first goal, and it was set piece move, improvised finish. But the ball from Jurez to drop it in over the top right into stride for Solaire and a brilliant finish. Like That that was a really, really good uh, equaliser from the French. But would you criticise... Well, I mean, what did you think of the English defending? Like, it struck me, funny enough, and it was a beautiful ball, but it did strike me after all the, um, the intricate work that they'd done to kind of establish their dominance, the equaliser came from a very well-flighted, but it was a ball over the top into nowhere. Terry Butcher wasn't able at all for Solaire and Shilton went down with all the athleticism of a bag of spuds. No, I, I, I agree. It wasn't the greatest film, but in, in those sort of situations, you know, in England, all energy, uh, they were quite high. Their defensive mm-hmm. line was quite quite high, so they're going to be susceptible to the run in behind. Yeah. Solaire peeled his run. Like, in those sort of situations, you know, your defensive line is, is generally set up by your management. That's what you set out to do. The thing that's flipping made no sense to me was you have Brian Robson, all energy, Steve Koppel, all energy, Ray Wilkins, Graham Ricks in the middle field, and not one of them were able to put any pressure on Jurez. He literally yeah. was nearly able to have pause before he played the pass. To me, that was the bigger uh, error. And previous to that, actually, the, the, the chance arises because of a really poor pass. Was it Ray Wilkins gave the ball away? It was one of the midfielders. So. Gave the, it was a really slack pass. I literally just rolled to Jurez, and he 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 one touch and hit his spot. And, and it was a great finish by Solaire. Like it was a great finish, it, mm-hmm. you know. But I mean, all, the game, the game, like we're just talking about, you know, how great the French were, how good England were. Like it just shows, like, is this the best game we've seen so far? Yeah. You know, in terms of a contest. Brazil, like, yes, like we've loved watching Brazil. Um, Scotland, you know, played in yeah. patches. Is, is this the best game we've seen so far in this tournament? We're going to talk about West Germany, Algeria, obviously shortly, but that that was a fantastic game for in a different way. But you're probably right, chat. To this point, this is really absorbing, engaging, clash of styles, but high quality. Like I mean, England were high quality. I thought Steve Koppel was superb. Like I mean, Steve Koppel played down the right, but he also wandered over to the left a couple of times. Um, outstanding. Like so, I mean, but it was it was. Um, they had a lot of England had a lot of players who played really really well with the ball at their feet. You know, it's, it's really not all about their energy. Like the the energy they needed to bring the energy to stop the French. But then when they did get the ball, they were they were able to they were able to play a bit. So it probably is, Karen. Yeah, I'd say it probably is. 
like we like we've talked about we've talked about Don Howe and Ron Greenwood. Like there's an interesting kind of philosophical battle happening in that management team. Mm. Now I'm gonna throw Ron Greenwood on on the on the psychotherapist's couch for a while, but like his background I'm sure he'll enjoy that. <laughs> he'd love that, I'd say. His background's informative, okay? <laughs> Like he, yeah. he's had great success with West Ham. He's been a solid professional footballer in his own time. He's won title with Chelsea. You know what I mean? He served in the RAF during the war, post-war. Like what actually assists his ascent within coaching is he has a, a period where he, he manages the Oxford University team. And the, the don of Oxford's football at the time is a guy called Sir Harold Thompson. Now, we all know about the FA committees that you hear about. Sir Harold Thompson rises within the FA to the point where in 1977, he's over the international committee. So when Don Revy leaves and everybody's calling for Bobby Robson, Brian Clough, you know, all these other coaches, he's the one that says, do you know what? We need a steady hand here. I'll go back to my old pal, Ron Greenwood. And, and his first action is to try and align all those guys that he would have been in competition with. Like he asked Clough and Robson to get involved in the B team and appoints other coaches to the under-23, and you're looking at it going, where does that mentality come from that he has no fear of the other, of his competitors? So he he's saying, now, it could be the RAF background, it may just be that he understands hierarchy or rank, or you know what, it is, you know what I mean? Now, Clough, for obvious reasons, backs out of it, but Robson buys into it fully, and who succeeds him after this World Cup, and indeed has taken the England team for one international before this World Cup? Bobby Robson, who was willing to work with him, willing to develop the same ideology and went over the B team for those years. Yeah. He was a Freemason, wasn't he? He was, yes. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's a Mason's thing. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. maybe they all had a handshake. <laughs> the order of the hierarchy. The order of the hierarchy, though, and the assumption that the guy at the top is the guy at the top. Not that I know much about masonry. <laughs> no more about stone masonry than Freemasonry. I don't know a lot about stone masonry. Mick's just showing us the handshake on the video. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very obscene. Very obscene. But I mean, uh, he's actually, he's a fascinating guy because he was born in the north of England, but raised in northwest London within like a couple of miles of Wembley. And his first job is he's, a, he's an apprentice sign writer. And one yeah. of the places he works is Wembley Stadium. So, you know, he's got such an affinity with the stadium and he genuinely comes across every time. I've watched a good few interviews now. He just comes across as Mr. <laughs> Guy with mm. ideals. His book was called Yours Sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> that lift off the shelves. I know, but he was like, he, he, um, he's a very interesting character. And I think he, like, I mean, look at, Look where they were when he put when he picked them up, and look where he brought them to. You know, well, it's so, I worth mean, examining he, that because Don Revy, like he's Don Revy's been a hugely successful manager, and literally in something that would be a portent for what we saw in the nineties, he's hounded out of his job by the press in England, gets a really hmm. lucrative offer to go and manage the United Arab Emirates, and he's gone. Doesn't even hang about. Like leaves the England job to become manager of a Middle East, small Middle Eastern national team. Yeah. Yeah. Unheard of. Greenwood had an amazingly successful 1980 European Championship campaign. I don't think they lost a game. Um, they were unlucky in Euro, Euro 1980. And 
and obviously they had those troubles in the qualifiers, but this must have turned the tide. Let's just, as we move this on, you mentioned the substitution. Back to France, Kieran. Tell us more. I know. I'm anything that could possibly be litigious to Mike Foley. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair enough. Good call. Sorry, I didn't read that in the notes. Mick, you're in. The rest of us would like to distance ourselves. <laughs> anything litigious or matters of the heart. I'll take care of that. Well, actually, is it matters of the heart? Because it's just very French if we go with the Well, it's guys, it? matters of the heart or matters of the groin, whichever whichever you want. But as you say, there is there is a touch of love in the afternoon about it. Like it is a it is a little bit, you know. This is this is this is what we do with our spare time. Anyway, this is uh, enough enough of the stereotypes. Um yes, France. Like before we get on to the loving, right? Um it's it is worth pointing out like that. The French coming into this, as Billy Joe touched on, right, and as you know, as we have we we have discussed and looked at their their pre qualifying campaign, they lost seven um, games in a row during qualifying. They certainly had. They lost to Ireland in the, in in uh, Lanzone Road and got their way got their way to the World Cup. Had not impressed. Like they lost two of the last three games before the World Cup. They lost to Peru and Wales and they drew with Bulgaria. Now we've watched Peru. Peru ain't up to much, and I, I appreciate friendly games are friendly games, but still not. So like they're still evolving the team. Like the team that played against Ireland, I think, I think two of them, two of them were there for the World Cup semi-final. Where not to spoiler alert, but anyway, uh, the what? team is evolving. The team I they know who, who knew who no. knew, and Patrick Battiston is going to have a wonderful tournament for the rest of it, and I have many know. long, many long happy memories of every match. Um, <laughs> But uh, uh, so they're evolving. They're evolving the team. And part of this evolution is the midfield. Um, one of the players who's playing in midfield is Jean-Francois Larios. Great old stager uh, with Saint-Étienne. An old teammate of Michel Platini's. Um, friendly with Platini, obviously, as a teammate. Even friendlier with his wife, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> for all concerned. Uh, they were having an affair. And... Apparently, it was common knowledge. It was such common knowledge that Platini was asked about the affair in the pre-match press conference before the England game. There you go. Um, but Larios, of course, everybody is conscious of how this is feeding into the team and the, the mood and so on. Um, Larios, in fact, had offered to pull out of the squad pre-World Cup. Uh, he said in an interview some years later, he said, in January of 1982, I went to see the coach, Michel Hidalgo, to explain the situation to him. I'd say Hidalgo knew well. The whole place knew. I suggest to him that for the good of the team, I would pretend I am injured and not go to the World Cup. But Hidalgo, and I really, I mean, in classic French, in cl- yeah, classic French fashion, I'm going to say, said no, as though this has no impact whatsoever on anything. This is this is how we live. It's not. It's not even the first substitution. Like the the first substitution is to get Didier Cisse on for Rashito. You're kind of yeah. going. There's an issue here. Sort yeah. it out. Sort sort it out. The joke at the time. Just to clarify. Rashito wasn't sleeping with anyone's wife. I just need no. to put that there. That weren't aware of. No. I thought that we were aware. Of. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. No, he wasn't. He was a handsome man, though. Uh, the joke <laughs> went at the time about Larios and Platini that at least when Larios was on the field with Platini Platini knew where he was um, so <laughs> Larios played against England and as we've said he was taken off and replaced by Jean Tigana. Um now subsequently Larios disappears he leaves the, he's just gone he leaves the squad as in physically goes away he, he disappears off to Barcelona 
where he's negotiating a transfer that never happens. Now he rematerializes later in the tournament, and I'm sure we'll we'll pick up his we'll pick up on his adventures when he comes back later on in the time. But like you know, when you've got you know Platini and Larios in the centre of midfield, lads, you know, um, it's and and the vibes are not good. Now I did actually keep an eye out to see where they passing the ball to each other, and they were. You know, and and you know, th- there was an element of look. We just got to get on with this. But um, again, there are there would have been talk and rumors, as there would be, that Platini basically it's him or me type of thing after that game. Who knows? Um, what we do know is from what Platini said after the game, he wasn't overly worried, at least in public. Anyway, he wasn't making a big deal out of losing to England. He was basically look, we need to win our next two games, and it's worth keeping in mind that we first round is groups, second round is also groups. There is no advantage for finish top of your group in the first phase going into the second phase. There's no advantage. All you got to do is just get over the line. So maybe that's in the back of his mind. He's going, look, what's that old expression? We blew the dirty petrol out. I know we're ready to go. I don't know. But I can only imagine, lads, I don't know what you think. I would have thought that there would have been fair pressure on France losing 3-1 to England. And they really, really wilted in the last half an hour as well. I mean, England, I mean, Paul Mariner's third goal to make it 3-1. Mariner couldn't move. Obviously, he was after losing nearly a stone in the la- in the previous eighty minutes. But like, if France could scarcely move either to even get near him to to make any sort of a impact to stop him. Well, well, funny enough, when Billy Joe was making the point about you know France wilting in the heat, and it almost sounded like he was describing England as the continental team, the team that got stronger yeah. as it got. Different times in those days, Kieran. Different times. Yeah, England was the. Costed. Never mind. Uh, there was only two subs used by France uh, allowed in those days, used by France in around the 74 minutes, as you heard, possibly for different reasons, and players were tiring. England used one in the 90 uh, minutes. Billy Joe, does this make any sense? certainly used them more effectively than, than Greenwood. Phil Neal kind of walks on and the whistle goes. <laughs> what? Like, how could you not, like, rest a few players? What is going on? Did anyone, was there, did the word sports science even exist? It's 100 degrees, whatever, Celsius. What the hell? I don't know wasn't part of the vocabulary at, at, at the time that that's for sure uh, look I, I i think that england just found themselves in a purple patch you know in that third quarter of the game and started to dominate and in those sort of situations c- coaches don't want to risk anything that that uh, you know that would accept that uh, or upset that sort of balance so i i think greenwood was just persistent with it and just just let it run and um, I think England were so motivated. I, th- I think that they were so motivated to do well that they continued to press and press and press. And and, and very much the, the Mariner goal was, uh, you know, was that an example of that? You know, Francis can barely, Trevor Francis can barely stand up. He falls over as he's trying to hit a shot. He kind of takes a couple of ricochets in the box, finds his way to, to Mariner. And he, he doesn't have the strength in his body to do anything else other than just the ball pops in front of him and he hits it with his instep and it goes, flies in past the keeper. But I, I think at this he stage... He can't so, celebrate too, Billy Joe. Do you know that? He's too tired to celebrate. He's too sorry. Like, yeah, but but I, what I, I want to say... Was about, that too tired to celebrate or just like... Because Paul Mariner, to me, kind of... character. He looks like something from Quadrophenia. You're kind of... <laughs> going, is oh, that boom. just part of the cool? Is he, is he doing the... Yeah, I'm too cool for that. <laughs> Well, do you know what's cro- what crossed my mind was no one went to celebrate with him and said, Jesus, is there a problem with poor old Paul? Is there is there hassle? <laughs> but I, he the said rocker, after he said, from the rockers, obviously. <laughs> no, it was a nice moment for him. 
Um, the late Paul Mariner, we need to, we should mention as well, uh, great old servant for Ipswich and Arsenal. But he, uh, he, that was his fifth, he was fifth successive game for England he scored in, which matched uh, Jimmy Greaves' record at the time. Uh, I think maybe Tommy Lawton might have done it as well. But anyway, um, at that time, that was that, that, that was the record. No, as Kieran mentioned there before, uh, the, the anoraks among us, um, including, well, what what are we? Only uh, only four parkers walking around the place. Um, Anoraks among us. Uh, yeah, well, let's let's discuss how caps are awarded in nineteen eighty. Oh my god! I can just just see everybody clicking on to something else. Uh, back to Joe Rogan, they go. Um, what you call <laughs> it? Uh, the, but yeah, yeah. Look, basically, there was one international, a B international, that Robson was over actually against Iceland. That was upgraded to a full international. So people go, eh, well, you know, he didn't actually, the six internationals, actually, it was five out of six he scored. In, but it was five in a row for Mariner, um, which is great. Anyway, I thought he had a very good game, actually, on the day. I, I thought he played well. Billy Joe, you were about to say something else when we all just jumped uh, in. I, I, was, I, was, I was just going to say, I, I think that Brian Robson deserves great credit for a second goal. You know, mm-hmm. the ball was lofted in into the area, and he's, like, he's so dynamic. He's attacking... Yeah. You can see from three steps away that this fella is going to launch himself into the air. He's going to engage those neck muscles. And whatever happens, whether the goalkeeper gets there or not, he's going to power a header goalward. And like as it happens, Ettore in the French goal makes a bad decision. Kind of comes, realizes halfway he's not going to get there. But Robson has absolute conviction in the way he heads that ball and just snaps the neck Great contact, back of the net, great goal. There is, it, there is photographs of the goal just as the ball has left his head and Robson is in midair with his torso twisted and as Billy Joe said, all the neck muscles engaged and it's just a picture of sheer dynamism and it captures Robson, not just young Robson, but Robson for another decade, just that sheer will to succeed at whatever he's doing, score that goal, make that tackle, etc. It's it's an it's a wonderful if if anyone doesn't know the image I'm talking about this just just go Google it. it's a it's a terrific image and captures the player perfectly. There you go. Fine. To, before we finish on this game in the paper, Robson still on a hat trick. Denise Robson, wife of England match winning uh, match winner in Bilbao, was lining up a double celebration for the family last night as she waited uh, on the due date of her of their second child. Uh, two goal hero Brian Robson. Sent her a message. Now let's make it a hat trick. Good lord! There you go, guys. Good man. lord! By the way, by the way, before we before we move on, the other key result from this day. No, no one wants to know. No one wants to know what Michelle Platini's wife decided to do in the end. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. I, I oh, want yeah, a happy yeah, ending. Yeah, I always yeah. want a happy okay. ending. Okay, okay. I'm this sure is, this uh, is the uh, final uh, word. Yeah. Yeah, they 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 drove off in a in a in a, in a Volkswagen no. Beetle down the coast the Côte d'Azur. No, she went back to Michel, and they lived happily ever after. Exactly. Okay. There you go. Just needed to get it out of her system. <laughs> <laughs> the atmosphere for this game is electric. Mm. It is. It is. It's also an electric you- in game too. Yeah, so yeah. want to add that in. Yeah, we'll move on. Go on. We can take a hint. Germany, one, Algeria, two. Is that really the scoreline? Yes, it is. Algeria, just the second African team ever to win a World Cup game. 
2-1 against West Germany. Unbelievable. Kieran. And boy, were they worth it. They yeah. were outstanding. Like they had you on the edge of your seat. Just willing them on to this win. And like West Germany were, I, I believe, the favourites on form coming into this tournament. Like they had the best record of any of the qualifiers. No doubt about it. I mean, the West German competitive record coming into the 1982 World Cup, lads, they were unbeaten since the 21st of June 1978 when they lost to Austria at the previous World Cup. So, I mean, even, like they'd won the European Championships in 1980. They won all eight games in the 1982 qualifying. 33 goals they scored, only conceded three. Um, they came into this Algerian game. It is, I can't recall ever coming across such a display of arrogance from a favourite team in a match of this this magnitude in any sport before. The things they were saying beforehand and their attitude towards the Algerians, uh, no matter how good or bad the Algerians were, was disgraceful. Now, I mean, you know, I'm the last person to say I don't like to see a bit of colour in in sport and someone, you know, saying something entertaining. But I mean, there's entertaining and there's... um, and they're just don't don't write insulting, and you're you're almost demeaning yourself to stuff they, they would have said. You know, Yuk Derval, the manager, said he would jump on the first train to Munich if they lost to Algeria. Um, so one of the he's players said, for the rest of the World Cup, then. Ah, well, they say yeah, he's got a one-way ticket. Uh, another player said we will dedicate the seventh goal to our wives and the eighth to our dogs. Uh, one of the one of the Algerian players recalled, uh, in his memory anyway that one of the Germans said he would play against Algeria with a cigar. Like, the Alge- it was so blatant and so sort of ludicrous that the Algerians actually thought it was a ploy. Like, what German team doesn't do their homework was their attitude. Like, sure, everybody, like, you know, it's, Ger- it's West Germany. But Derval even had a video uh, of, of Algeria playing and he didn't watch it because he thought the players would laugh at him if they knew he'd watched it. Um, and just to add one more thing before we go on, like, Okay, it's one thing to say we're we're West Germany and they're Algeria and we're just not and we're just, you know, we have no there's no reason for us to fear them regardless. The German record against North African teams is appalling at the World Cup. Like, not that it's very big, but the bit they play is dre- like in nineteen seventy, they beat Morocco two one and they were really poor looking at the reports, really poor. And then they draw nil all with Tunisia in nineteen seventy-eight. And on top of that, they actually had played Algeria in a friendly in 1964. And the result? Algeria 2, West Germany 0. So for all these reasons, their arrogance and their hubris, it just sets them up as the bastards of this tournament. I was just about to say, have we perfectly set the pantomime villains of this tournament? Because when I was watching this game, they're so hard to like. And bear in mind that I have loved subsequent West Germany and Germany teams. But this team is the most unlikable I've seen. And there was little kind of things you were watching and you were going, hmm, it's very like that of the Germans in Escape to Victory. Just the white and black. Like completely lacking colour. Like when I associate great German teams, what I think of is, the 74 team with their bomber and the round neck, you know, the round neck jersey, which made it cool. It, 
It, yeah. you know, yeah. that's that's a retro piece, right? But this team, you were just looking at it. Going, There's nothing colorful about them. Like it's not like 1990 subs and on when every time we see a German team, there's a splash of yellow or red in it. These guys are just set up to be the bad guys. They are the dark side here. <laughs> and on the other hand, Algeria bounce into this game, Billy Joe. We were remarkable beforehand. Like you, you, the, the screen comes on, the footage comes on, the stadium is like rocking. It's like possibly feels like a home game would look like in Algeria for one of their qualifiers. And then one of their fans is on the pitch, just kind of wandering around with a flag, part of the part of the crack, all laid back. I love it. Yeah, that that did make me laugh. As the 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 link or the I suppose the feed that I watched took about six or seven minutes for the game to kick off, and I was saying, Jesus, when's this going to start? And then you just see some fellow with a, as you point uh, described with the flag, and every now and then he'd do a little sh- swivel of the hips. I thought he'd you know burst into a bit of a dance. It the wasn't Algerian just for the flag waving. Yeah, yeah, the Algerian Tom, Tom Jones is right. He's behind um, the coin toss, and then he goes and joins the team photo and just stands behind them. Yeah, it's bizarre. It's bizarre. We better look into that. Like, yeah. I, 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 I reckon he. I, I. I think he was the kit. I think he was the kit man. Like, how else is he on the field and somebody's not moving him? Like, he has to be in. He's some way affiliated. You know, he could be. He could be like the crown prince of some part of Algeria, and everyone's afraid to go near him just in case. You know, <laughs> yeah, he end up well. Well, <laughs> we'll speak about litigation later. But Mick's got this guy. But I mean, I, 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 oh man, the football they play in this game. Oh, I think yeah. they're the entertainers. I didn't know what to expect. I, I was like expecting maybe frantic counter-attacking. There's a little bit of that. But by God, there's a lot of really, really good attack play. Such yeah. nice uh, touches at times. Like the winner for me, you're just, the build-up play to it, you're just going, oh man, this does, this deserves a goal. Please, please, please let there be a goal at the end of this. Like it starts in the center of field where it's just like dummy, you know, leave him for dead pass it off, next guy outside of the boot, inside of the boot, move it on, up the wing, and you just go, oh, please, please give them the winner here. And the tension while you're watching this, because you want them to get it, even though we know the results. You're just like, please let, me this, let, let this be the moment. Oh, man, what a goal. What a game. Billy Joe. It's a great bit of football, but and as Kieran describes it over here, but you know the pass before the assist? Oh, it was like played to absolute perfection and Assad is running onto it, but it goes so close. I think it's Hans Peter Briegel. It's it's literally about six inches away and he's tempted to put his foot out and try and stop it. But the weight of the pass is so good that it kind of zips past him, past him and then just Assad runs onto it and plays it across the goal for Balumi for a tap in. It's, it's, it's absolute precision. And I think that's the, it's the way that the Algerians married the exuberance of this being a big, big thing, obviously being in, in, in the World Cup, a big, big thing. And that exuberance and energy they showed, to be able to marry that to the sort of precise football they played on counterattacks in those sort of passing moves, even the first goal. Like there's a there's a one-two, I think, between Zidane and I, I can't remember Zidane which other player. Yeah, no relations, there's no relation. And like it's one of these I love I love a long range one too. You know, where the balls are about the players are about forty yards apart. And then it, it's 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 top class. Like uh, I think it was maybe with your man. The two for the first goal, like two German defenders like chasing oh, yeah. it down. Yeah. 
And the coolness of the finish, like it's a little bit of a, it's a definite love in the box. This is Madger who goes on to win a European Cup with Porto. Like It's outstanding. You're 100% right. He just kind of, he kind of stabs it between two defenders and his foot is four foot in the air. But every bit of that goal is brilliant. Because if you look at it back and you think, well, the ball is played through from Zidane turns and run at the heart of the defence. He plays it in between the full back and the centre half. And Bellumi runs onto it. Bellumi scores the winner with his right foot. Bellumi does the right thing here. He tries to take it with his left foot and he tries to chip it over Schumacher. But Schumacher's such a brilliant goalkeeper. He's out on him in a flash and makes a brilliant save. Rebound flicks into the air and there is Madger to, to finish as you described. It's a, it's a goal, two goals of the highest quality. And and, I, and and the expression we're going to use a lot today is typical finish. The, 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 the Rummenigge finish was a typical Rummenigge finish. Like, I'm pretty sure he scored a carbon copy at the 86 World Cup. I think you're absolutely bang on. That's what crossed my mind as well. Ball across from the left flank and he was just there to nick it in. I actually thought, like, I mean, the Germans, like, I thought Rummenigge actually had a decent game overall, right? He tried and tried and tried. And on another day, he could have had a hat trick. But it was just one of those, it was one of those days. But the goal, the goal, the goal was a classic. But I mean, again, idiotic stuff. Like, I mean, the Algerians had on their, on their way, just in the previous couple of months, like they had, they had beaten Nigeria home and away to get there. And then they beat Real Madrid, they beat the Republic of Ireland, and they beat Benfica in friendlies, in the warm-up games. Um, Bellumi was the 1981 African Footballer of the Year. Um, like, they were a very, very well-drilled, close-knit team. At that time, uh, Algerian footballers weren't allowed to leave Algeria until they had turned 28. So they had all played up together. Um, like, I just, I go back again to that unbelievable arrogance of the Germans to think they could just stroll in. And even when they get the equaliser, lads, did you notice the reaction when Rummenigge scores the equaliser? Comes out, handshakes, kind of going, yeah, we're sorted here now, lads. It gave me such pleasure to see them ripped apart within 10 seconds by one of the great team goals. I counted nine, I think nine passes for the goal and the crowd goes nuts and you can see the Germans going, oh, bollocks. And, you know, the last 10 minutes are just epic, absolutely epic. The Germans are just beating them down to try and try and get the equaliser. You can see that this is a footballing nation with heritage, right? Like, yeah. a lot of the 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 in the these World Cups like these early representations from from Africa, they're new countries. But even prior to independence, like there's a huge footballing tradition in Algeria, and it's based upon identity. You know, Islamic and Arab identity in Algeria. Now, like Algerian club sides have played in the French Cup because it was a department. It was a, a you know a department of France. Um. They have, like, it's no surprise that someone like Zinedine Zidane is of is of Algerian extraction. You know, they bring flair to France, ultimately. And the, this team has flair. And actually, you mentioned, like, they beat West Germany in 1964. And I know you've got a fascinating story to tell about their manager and the period that he played. But that team he played on... We're beating international teams like solid, rep, big reputation European national teams by six yeah. nil. Yeah, there is a heritage here that the Germans should have had their eyes open to. 
It's just, I mean, on all levels, on all levels, they just got it so, so badly wrong. I mean, you talk about the heritage, um, like the manager of the 82 World Cup team was Rashid Makhloufi. Now, Rashid Makhloufi in 1958 was 21 and he was playing for San Etienne. He had actually won four caps with France at the 1958 World Cup. But that year, he quit French football entirely, along with nine other Algerian footballers. And they set up, and an, in inverted commas, a national team. It was a kind of an extension of uh, the independence movement, the Front de Liberation Nationale, the FLN, I'm going to call them from here on in when I'm talking about the team. So it was kind of like using football. And we've talked about this a little bit already, about Brazil, about Poland, about other teams. It's idea of using football as a form of expression over, above and beyond the reality you're living in. And this is another example. This is even a magnified example. This is an Algerian team for a country that doesn't exist in 1958. And between 1958 and when Algeria get their independence in 62, the, the estimates t- seem to vary, but the best, the best, most reliable one I are the most regular. 65 sorry, games most, or something. Yeah, well, 91. They played 91 games, I, I reckon, and they won about 65 of them. They played 4-2-4 formation, very deliberately played 4-2-4, very, very attacking, and people love to come and see them play because they just went after everybody. Where did they play matches? They played in Eastern Europe. They played in North Africa. They played the Middle East, East Asia, China. Um, essentially because the French uh, succeeded in getting FIFA to basically debar them from playing in a lot of different countries. The Germans, for example, the Germ- West, West Germany would have been very supportive of France in terms of trying to hold on to Algeria in, the, in that period. Um, so you had that, that heritage of the FLN team, four years, as I say, going around. Um, McLouf was the coach. There were other FLN players on that Algerian backroom staff in 82 as well. To the, to, to the Algerian players in 1982, that's generation were heroes but they were also father figures to them in 82 so all those things that the Germans said that we can have a chuckle over and you know rightly so they went very deep with the Algerians because they were insulting as Kieran mentioned not just the 82 team but a heritage and it's a it's the 20th anniversary of Algeria being formed in 1982 so I mean imagine at their first World Cup I mean it's 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 extraordinary I mean, McLouf actually went back to St. Etienne, by the way, after they got independence. They won four league titles in total. He described playing for the FLN. He said it was an experience that couldn't have been bought with all the gold in the world, which I think tells you exactly how much football and how much that team and the role of that team in presenting an Algerian nation to the world actually meant to him and to thousands of others and generations afterwards. One of those players in absentia got a 10-year prison sentence because he was actually on his national service in France when he absconded. And what he sacrificed to do that was a transfer to Real Madrid. He was an established French international. So, I mean, these guys put principle over profit for their country. But the the other thing with this is, like, if you think about post-colonialism, and we know something about post-colonialism here, your big ogre, if you like, always is the colonial power. Like it's so brittle between uh, Algeria and France. They don't play each other in a match until like the early 2000s. And the match ends with crowd trouble. It's not completed. Algeria in many respects in the French Empire 
is like South Africa was in the Commonwealth. It's, you know, there's, there's a transplanted community there of Europeans who dominate Algerian society. And when they gain independence, they, they return to France. But one thing they've also had lots of in France was Algerian immigration because they needed it for the economy. So this stadium's hopping in Gijon. The reason is they've traveled from France, those fans. They haven't traveled mostly from Algeria. Those are Algerian immigrants in France. Now, a significant part of this, again, take aside France, but what other countries might they have beef with? When France was occupied by the Germans in the Second World War, all French territories fell under Nazi control and Vichy government, including the Department of Algeria, where many Algerians fought against them in the war in trying to remove the Germans from France. So this game has a significance. That's like, this is 40 years from that and 20 years from their independence. And they really felt post-Second World War, because of the part they had played in French resistance, that de Gaulle's reward to them of independence should have come sooner. But actually what happened under de Gaulle was they put them further under the boot before eventually giving them their independence. I suppose just from learning about, you know, trying to learn as much as you can about uh, countries' football and culture, you know, just from watching one game as such without knowing any any of the history, I, I think it's really evident from the early stages of the game with the atmosphere and 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 Kieran, I'm sure is right there in relation to the the numbers they had in the in the stadium, but they were so into it. But not only were they into it, it seemed like it was an educated support you know they were they were you know making a lot of noise over two or three quick passes it wasn't all about getting the boot in or or i think there was there was one movement in the left back position written for two or three minutes and there was a massive roar as the left back you know does a really good bit of play and they get out and it it, it was huge you know reaction to that and that was uh, impressive and i think it tells you a bit about what um they valued in terms of the way they wanted to to play football. I suppose this is, maybe this is a question for you, and, and maybe I'm going off topic here, but it's a point I wanted to make is that one of the things that I really enjoy about this process is that you get to see players that you you know are superstars, and you get to kind of re reanalyze something yourself, and and I suppose maybe make up your own mind as to what they are. And in these two games today, like I, I spoke already about Jurez and the player he was, but I I, I have to say I I kind of. After the game, I understand what Karl Heinz Rummenigge was about. You know, even in that first half, he's living at the back post. He's yeah. constantly trying to run down the side of defenders in between the center half and the and the and the full back. He's trying to get to the in line and play across uh, something across the goal. If he's not there, he's the one that's trying to get in on something across the goal. So you know, the goal he does score then is a is a real example of uh, of I suppose. <laughs> the continuous movements that he would make in that area. And you can see why he was successful. It's actually a game that it's the first one so far. Actually, I would say to people, you know, go and find it and watch it because yeah. even, even though we knew the result, I'm just from my own point of view, anyway, even though I knew the result, um, the drama of the last 10 minutes, I swear to God, I was shouting at the shouting at the screen. Like the Germans were coming. Like, they could have had two penalties in the last 10 minutes. Rummenigge hits the, like the kind of the, the, the crossbar with a header. 
there are chances left, right, and center. The Alger- but the Algerians are, are defending very well. Like it's it's they're defending really well. But there's just so so many chances being made. Um, it is an amazing match to watch in a different way to the England France game. Like you mentioned earlier on, Kieran, is was England France the best game we've seen? It probably is. It was the but, best game, but this has been the most compelling. It's so, I mean, just so compelling. And to take the, it's great quality. And the reason, and the reason you know it's a great one is because it takes you all to yourself and you forget that you know the result. You're completely carried away by this, this drama that's um, that's 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 playing out in front of you. And I mean, you got a guy yeah. like Murzakan on 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 uh, fullback, but I gotta mention Shaban Murzakan. Like he was, you know, who knew him. And I mean, looking back at some of the reportage of the TV commentary, Hugh Johns, who was at his last World Cup for ITV, just said, this guy is a revelation. And he is a revelation from fullback. He drives forward so many times. I'm not sure if he's the same guy, but one player managed to, one defender did three bicycle kick clearances in the course of the game. And I think it might have been Murzakan, but I can't be 100%. But like there was, he was just so, so, so good. And you're watching them and you're going, oh, my God, these guys are just a blessing onto this tournament, you know? The thing is, you say about drama, it's it's like even if you have all the facts and you can see who scored and when they scored it, watching how it played out is what makes this such an amazing rewatch. It's like like this, the eight passes for the second goal that Kieran described at the very beginning of this, which comes from the kickoff after West Germany have equalised and the whole world goes, Billy Joe. That's it. It's time for them to kick on and win this game. I mean, Assad, who has the assist of all assists, is taken out in the build-up. He gets the pass away, chopped down. He jumps over that tackle, gets back on his feet and runs down the line. There are eight passes, six players involved. My favourite goal of the World Cup so far. And I know we've had two wonder Brazilian goals, but that's my favourite goal. Yes, and I think I think if that was something that came out of the blue in the game, you would say, oh, you know, that's kind of not so much lightning, you know, uh, catching lightning in a bottle. But even in the first half, there was there's there's about ten passages of play where you could say you could pull out even the first goal to some extent where you could pull out four or five really quick passes where there's really good interplay between Major, Zidane, Assad, Balumi, one touch, two touch stuff, playing and moving uh, and and not being able, you know the Germans weren't weren't able to touch, weren't able to touch them. Um, so I, I think there is uh, evidence there. I, I think we have to speak maybe about Balumi and how our our understanding of the quality of players is so different now because we see all the best players up close and we see so much football on, on television. He didn't get a transfer when he wanted to go to Europe. My yeah, God. Uh, like, and the career longevity. He, he played senior football from 1974 to 1999. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. 25, yeah. So and and as I think you know, as Mick pointed out earlier on, you know, you could you weren't allowed to leave till you're twenty eight or older, and that prevents him going I, to Barcelona apparently. Yeah, and I believe I I read somewhere as well that he had you know he was in it, he had flown to Italy at some stage for a transfer to an Italian club, and it fell through for 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 whatever reason as well. I think at, at some stage he was voted voted the fourth best African footballer of all time, uh, and so you can understand the standing he had on the on the continent. But I think you can see, you can see in just his, in this game, the qualities he had. As I mentioned, he does the right thing for the first goal in that he tries to chip it over Schumacher with his left foot, foot left foot. And then when the ball is played across for his the goal he scores himself, he, he's hitting, striking it in. It's a tap in with his right foot, but he has that confidence. The thing that I noticed about him is that 
he could control the ball off either foot, go either way. One touch with his left foot, one touch with his right foot, move it from his left to his right. Really good close control. Just on Balumi to finish. The poor devil ended up being the subject of an international arrest warrant for over 20 years. Jesus. Um, basically, in 1989 in Cairo, during the world, during, after a World Cup qualifying match, there was a brawl that erupted in the wherever the Algeria team were staying between players of the Algerian squad and Egyptian supporters uh, that left an Egyptian fan who was a doctor, I gather, seriously injured like his, by a broken bottle. So Balumi was believed to be responsible for this and he was added to the list of the accused. And it, this, this arrest warrant for him was only rescinded in 2009. Jeez. Christ. But he was only a couple of years out of playing, but down to things. <laughs> you, but just yeah. to, and just to square the circle, coming from the uh, the pre-match press conferences of Jupp Derval, would you like to hear what he had to say after the game? How, how much was that taken to, uh, to Munich? Yeah. A train journey from Hihon. And I appreciate they would have built this network during the Second World War, possibly. But a train ticket from Hihon to Munich, that'd have cost a few quid, wouldn't it? Like the uh, Eric was probably cheaper to keep him there. So he said afterwards, I mean, he can't help himself. No, and I, I, you know, this is from English language newspapers, so I'm guessing this is a translated version. I, So, you know, but anyway, I can hardly believe and even less understand that we lost the game. We never got into our game. I can perfectly understand how you lost the game. And then to be fair, he says, Algeria played very intelligently, waiting and counterattacking, and they surprised our defenders who fell apart in the second half. I said, that's it. Throw the boys under that train. Oh, under the train that he's on in first class. And obviously, uh, as this story continues, I mean, West Germany's World Cup went downhill from there in Algeria. So let's not let's not ruin it. That's the way it surely is going, though. That's it from this game. We've got one game to squeeze in and it's kind of important. This is a bumper uh, episode, lads. Let's keep it rolling. Thing one, Honduras one. Game three, and it's the host. And how far are we into this World Cup? I think we've seen about, I'm going to say, around 17, 18 teams. Maybe these are the 17th and 18th team to, to appear. Those things don't happen these days, Kieran. And they're playing in the magnificently entitled Estadio Luis Casanova. What a stadium, what an atmosphere packed. Actually, speaking of which, I'll be honest with you, after watching England, France, and with Germany, Algeria, I kind of felt a little bit like Larios after an afternoon with Mrs. Platini when I got to Honduras in Spain. I was just sparking a cigarette and seeing it was pointless on, to be honest with you, when I got to this match. So I'll, 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 I'll clear the floor for you for this one. <laughs> Look, the stadium better known as the Mestalla, am I correct, Billy? I think so, Valencia. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, it's still, I believe, the the stadium. Even though there's been some chicanery in Valencia in relation to new stadiums and financial uh, improprieties al- along the way. Uh, look, I, I think this is it, it's odd that you we do a tournament and the hosts have 
so so few storylines around the football. There might be other things going on and, and that, but it really is. When you look through the squad, when you watch bits and pieces of the football, it's uninspiring. You know, the, it, it, it really is an uninspiring Spanish squad. And I think maybe maybe it's the way Spanish football is different now in that you have it's totally dominated by the big two, whereas there's a spread of players from Oviedo, Sociedad, obviously, you know, your Madrid and Barcelona, Atletico, um, even Betis. There's a much greater spread of players. Some of them Sociedad players had won titles as well along the way. The back-to-back titles, like the, the backbone of this team is the Sociedad, or the squad certainly, is the Real Sociedad team. And... What's intriguing about that is they as a club didn't have any non-Basque players until I think 1989 when they when they signed the most un-Basque person they could find in John Aldrich. <laughs> um, but, you know, that was the tradition. And also there is, you know, as you mentioned, there's an athletic Bilbao player on this team. So this Spanish team is Basque-centric and doesn't have a huge presence from Barcelona or Real Madrid. But actually, that's the story of Spanish football at the time. Like, the big clubs that we, we see now as super clubs were not in that space at the time. It is 16 years since a Spanish team has won the European Cup or the Champions League, as we now know it, in 1982. It will be another 10 years before a Spanish club do win one. You know, their their highs in this period are an occasional Cup Winners' Cup or a UEFA Cup final appearance. I think the previous six European Cups had all been won by English teams, if I'm correct. Uh, yes. Nottingham Forest yes. twice, Liverpool twice, Villa. Aston Villa and... No, Liverpool three times. Liverpool three, Liverpool three times, Liverpool three times yeah. Nottingham Forest twice and Aston Villa. So... Yeah. You know, this is uh, like Spain, even as a country, it's only seven years since their dictator died. It's it's not what we come to know Spanish football for in the 90s, 2000s and onwards. This like a big transfer at this time was Steve Archibald to Barca. That's it. Like, I mean, you're talking, I mean, a year later, Real Madrid are going to lose a Cup Winners Cup final to Aberdeen. No. You know, Alex Ferguson in charge, very fine Aberdeen team, but it's Aberdeen. Like, at, you know, three years later, Terry Venables will rock up to uh, Barcelona. Steve Archibald, as he's, like, it's a different, it's a different time. And I think that's what, that's what I struggle with watching the game, actually. I think just the knowing, knowing that it's just a kind of an indifferent Spanish team, it's an indifferent period of time. I found it was I, 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 the game didn't really grab me. I have to say, and again, maybe that's because the first two games of the day were just so so good. Um, but there are there are things to be drilled into about Spain. Obviously, Honduras. That's great. Like, I mean, that's the other thing. What a great result for Honduras. Like, well, yeah. I mean, if, you know, we we we've talked about like big results when a host gets turned over or gets stunned in other World Cups. Like, this is a massive result for Honduras. Um, and I mean, the thing about the Spanish team is there must have been some expectation on them. And it, there must have been a sense of something's there. Like the manager, Jose Santamaria, is, is from the previous Golden Age. He's actually Uruguayan-born of Spanish parentage, but he's from the Di Stefano, Pushkas era. You know what I mean? So... 
when you make a managerial appointment like that, what you're saying is this is the guy that can restore the golden age. You know, Kieran, as well, like we said at the first episode, it's worth saying again, they got awarded the World Cup in 1966. So it's kind of worth noting that as well. Like, I mean, we're talking a really bizarre kind of uh, structure in those days to do with all sorts of voting. And if we vote for you, you'll vote for us and all that. So that was in the bag for a long time. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, there's a deal done in 66 that effectively, like these these aren't even contests. Like West Germany says, hey, can we have 74... You can have 82 and we'll let Argentina have 78. Imagine if it had been the reverse. Imagine the 74 World Cup had been in Spain. Oh my God. You know, at the end of General Generalissimo Franco. You know what I mean? Can you imagine? That would have been can you imagine the stadium, stadium would not have been finished. I just need to put that there on the table. Can you imagine the state of the stadiums? I mean, these the ones we're looking at, no, these are the brand new ones and they look like they're going to fall down at any moment. Can you imagine them in 1974? It would have been grass banks and, you know, I don't know, mad. Like, you know, here's the key point here, Billy Joe. The Honduras people have signed up to this podcast to relive their greatest moment one more time. So can we at least start with that? Hector Zelaya in the early stages of this game. What a finish. Yeah, it's it's a really good goal. Uh, again, I think I think this is, it's not to generalise anything as well, but, you know, it's a, it's a, country that are very, you know a team that's very well organized i think the the entirety of the the central american qualifying uh, on the commentary that i watched it was stated that it, it happened in honduras i suppose that gave them some advantage in terms of qualifying but that doesn't take away from the fact that you know i think the day you know yesterday you see the the hammering that that hungary d- dished out um and there's a way more resilience in this Honduras team and quality as well, because as you as you said, Robert, it was a you know a fantastic finish. Never looked in doubt. Looked like that he was always going to slot it when they, when the chance arose. Um, and I really the like the Spanish after that were in 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 panic stations mode, and for a lot long long periods of that game, Honduras looked really really comfortable. And that's to their credit. You can't just all put always put it down to you know the bigger nation or the. Uh, team with a bigger football and heritage not playing well um, I don't think Honduras let them play No and a number of them got transfers to Spain after this World Cup um, Shock horror <laughs> Most prominently Gilberto Yearwood who had a stellar career in Spain you know and is deemed to be one of their all time great players but like this isn't their is this this isn't their first appearance at a World Cup is it? It is their is first it? one yeah Wow yeah. It's probably their best moment because what an impact. Yeah. The word organized comes to mind there. Like, I mean, okay, the El Salvador result aside, but I mean, you know, in terms of a World Cup expanding, and it's the kind of thing you would have heard, particularly in recent World Cups, you know, they're very organized, you know, it, it, almost being a euphemism for, geez, we didn't expect that. Like in this 82 World Cup, like this is the first, you know, this is the, ex- the beginning of the expansion. We've had Cameroon. Very defensive, but very, very well organized. Like they know what they're about. They have an identity and they're sticking to it. Algerians, the very, very same. And the Hondurans as well now. Um, showing that, you know, showing all the things that we learn up through the years as more and more teams come into the tournament. Like that with with identity and good organization, um, you can do a lot in tournament football. El Salvador didn't get the organization right, but they got the identity right with their attacking football. You gotta give them that four two four. Yeah. And and sure. their coach is the uh, is is like 
Mr. Patriot. Like, I think he manages oh, yeah. this, the, the international team four times in his career and also has a spell after managing them twice as the under-20 manager. Like, this is the guy that they just turn to every time. And he, Yeah, he got them to the 2006 World Cup. Like he, this is a guy who goes out and really takes the game by the scruff of the neck in the way he sets his team up. Yeah, and he's only passed away in 2021. Um, what a, like what a story this team were. And like I read an article about Zelaya who who had to retire just a year afterwards. He got his contract with Deportivo La Coruña, but actually couldn't play for them because he just had a leg injury that kind of flared up. And had played in the World Youth Cup with Honduras, but it's uh, it's a kind of a, a, a sad story in the end. But he, like he is a national hero. This is we all know in Ireland we have our moments, and every nation has their moments in big tournaments that people remember. But this. This is such a memorable moment for Honduras. Yeah, it was magnificent, and he took it really, really well. Um, yeah, look, I, I think there's, I think there's more to be mined about Honduras as this tournament goes on, yes. and there's certainly a lot that. more to talk about with the Spanish. Um, but perhaps in another game. Well, yes. I just, I, I mean, I'm only talking for myself. And maybe in second half, lads. We need to talk about that. They get a penalty. Yeah. They make two changes in the 46 minute. Two substitutions in the 46 minute. I mean, the the guy who holds up the thigh must have been like taken out of the tea room because, like, when would he ever be needed at that time? You know, he's having the biscuits. Well, the, he's like, what? The, so? the substitutions is the bigger issue because, like, Juanito is the single Real Madrid player on this team, and he is one of the substitutions. <laughs> Trouble. They get back into it. They score. Billy Joe, you just weren't blown away by them yet. You're going to take a deeper dive later in the tournament, perhaps? And Yes, and, and knowing the part of the world that I'm currently residing and that we're more familiar with, I, I'm looking forward to having a, a proper look at them uh, You know, when they play um, Northern Ireland. Uh, and you know, that, as, a, as, a, as a young person, that's probably one of the key memories of, of, of being on the island of Ireland uh, throughout the 80s and you know, a big game like that. So I think, I think I'll give maybe a more honest assessment of, of the qualities of the Spanish team following that one. Speaking of Northern Ireland, we'll be turning our attention to them in tomorrow's podcast. Yes, and just in like I'm not going to go through all my nuggets from the newspapers because we don't have enough time. But I will say that uh, there was one thing I did want to bring up with you guys, if I can find it here. Yes, it's the Northern Ireland FA chairman Harry Cavan. What a name! Uh, he went on to to or he had made a point on the day before Northern Ireland had their first game that he was criticising FIFA's decision to retain 24 countries in the 1986 finals in Colombia, as they were meant to be in at that point. Uh, I read that and went, yeah, he's probably pushing hard for 32 teams because, you know, Northern Ireland want to continue qualifying. No, no, he wants 16 teams. That's what he wants. He, he wants back to the days when, in order to get out of Africa, you also had to beat the guys that came out of Asia and Oceania. I think so. And he's confident <laughs> Northern Ireland will be sound. They'll keep qualifying. Nah, we'll see they're in their golden age, aren't they? It's going to go on forever. Like this is, I mean, as we get to tomorrow, eighty-two doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, they're uh, they're on a they're on a great old run. Hmm. Team of the day, lads. Team of the day. Just time for a team of the day. Give me some names because I'm usually the person that goes there. But I'm just going to start with my team of the day are Algeria. Ah, yeah. Interesting. Like, so we start with them as a team sheet and you take players out back, to put players yeah, in. Back, yeah, no, you can just back, remove yeah, guys from my team rather than work the other yeah. direction. Well, Rumenegger has to get in there, so 
Jamel Zidane well, maybe has to drop out controversially. Um, I, yeah, I, I would definitely, I would keep the goalkeeper. I would keep the entire back four of Algeria. Um, I'd like, if I was, I would have Brian Robson has to be in there. Has in the to be in there, yeah, for sure. absolutely. I would say, I would say, I would, I would load it up because there's loads of great midfield. Brian play. Robson in for Ali Fergani, then are we? Yeah, I, I, I would, I would load it up, right? I would have Koppel, I would have Robson, I would have Platini, there, yeah. I would have Platini, Jures, and Balumi, and I put Rumanega up. <laughs> what a midfield! That's, that's, that's what a midfield. I mean, there ain't much cover there. But, you know, the way the Algerians defended, they don't need it. Can I just say that if you're doing that, just drop the strikers. Drop will get goals, Balumi will get them, Platini will get them. It'll be fine. Don't yeah. bother with two up top. Nah, it's not. Rumenegg on his own. That'll do. Rumenegg, he probably doesn't necessarily deserve to be in there, but no room well, for Zalea. You've got to get in. We've got to put oh, him Zalea. in. Sorry, team I day. forgot him. I had him on my team. Yeah, Sorry, I actually had him there. on my team. I had, um, I, oh, I, I, I was going 4 5 one today. Yeah, yeah, good call. Good call. <laughs> <laughs> that's it I think we have a team that's it folks tomorrow Northern Ireland make their bow in the World Cup Kuwait make their bow in the World Cup they're taking on Czechoslovakia there's a game between Chile and Austria there's loads of other stuff to talk about who knows maybe we'll get a chance to catch our breath or maybe we won't maybe the football will even get better or the stories will just keep flowing join us tomorrow adios adios amigos Dios. and hasta la vista You're going through your entire uh, vocabulary there, are you?